Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The Denisons. The Denisons. The busiest in the biz. You do know who it is. It's Dennis Quaid. That's him. Hi, Dennis Quaid here. And today on The Renaissance, I'm speaking with podcast pioneer and a true Renaissance man in his own right, Adam Carolla. Adam shares his rather unique story of how he discovered what it was he wanted to do in life and how it brought him to where he is today. I hope you enjoy it. All right. Well, hello, everybody. Dennis Quaid is here, and so is Adam Carolla here on the Renaissance. Adam Carolla is a true Renaissance man. That is for sure. The guy is uh, not only a huge, well, he's a podcast pioneer and has the record for the most downloaded podcast, uh, 250,000 on his very first day that he had. He's also a skilled carpenter. He races cars, collects cars. You were a traffic school in- instructor, right? I was. I, I take it. To stand-up comedy, a boxer for many years. You boxed as a light heavyweight. Would I be right about that? Yes, that would be yes. correct. You were a football player. You were all-city, all-college football player. You're a filmmaker. What is it that you haven't done? What is it that you're not interested in? Ah. Uh. I'm trying to think. I guess I don't know what I'm not interested in because as soon as I find out about something, then I'm interested in it. It, it, Off the top of my head, if you were to say, what is it that you've always kind of liked and known about but never really participated in, I would say it would be flying aircraft. I've always loved aircraft. I've always loved speed. I've always loved that kind of control, piloting. I know you have some history in that. And yes. for me, the one thing that I've always kind of been interested in and I've never gotten near is that subject. What is the reason about that fear of death? I, there's an element of fear in there, but that's never really been a big factor for my endeavors in life. It's just, there's an element, I'll tell you for me, I come from a very humble background. And it, it's, you know, I think people think that Growing up without money just means you're growing up poor, but it's more than that. There's a psychological part of it. And certain things like getting a pilot's license or having your own aircraft, that's for other people. That's for other people. You know, I felt Mm -hmm. that way. I was essentially rich for 10 years before going to Maui. You know, because Maui, that's what other people do. You don't do that, you know? And it's like, why wouldn't you do it? It's like, because that's for other people. It's it's that yeah. that mentality, you know? Sounds like that comes from, uh, like, growing up kind of middle class in, in North Hollywood. That Yeah. Oh, that I, type, I, yes. Uh, lower, yeah. lower middle class, but yeah, yeah. Just the notion of going to Maui or getting your pilot's license or, you know, 
buying, you know, I can't, I don't use Grubhub. I can't have people bring food to my house. That's that's for other people. It feels weird. <laughs> <What> about, <laughs> in this day and age, I can't believe that. That's hard. I. It's like if you want a pizza or you want tacos or whatever, then go order them and go get them. That's the go way I feel it. about it. You can see who puts their hands on them. I don't That's even sure. care about that. I really don't. <laughs> I have no fear of it. It's just there's certain... It's an interesting thing because I will buy a $5 million car. I have done that. But if you order tacos, then you go to Chipotle and you pick them up. I have no idea how my wiring works. That's how it works. I mean, I myself, when it it comes to like flying, I was terrified to fly. But the thing that spurred me to do it was because I got the right stuff and I was playing an astronaut. And uh, I felt like, as part of the research, I really needed to get over that and learn how to talk on that radio voice, you know, right. that they all have. And uh, it was terrifying. I felt like I was going to fall out of the sky the first time I was there. But it was something I got over. It was something that I was, it, it, anytime I have a, a real fear of something, it's usually the thing that drives me to do it. Yes. A lot of people, a lot of people could learn from that. Uh, they really, but you can't pull off on a cloud, and yet you race cars, right? Yes, which is a lot more dangerous than flying, actually. Yeah, uh, sure, maybe. I guess so. It, I, I guess it depends what kind of flying and what kind of racing. But yes, probably statistically, racing is is probably more dangerous. You grew up there in North Hollywood. What is it that you wanted to be? Did you have any idea or inkling what it was that you were going to become? You know, it was a little, the notion of becoming something was a little bit of a luxury. People were in, in my group, we were in sort of fight or flight mode all the time. So we were kind of thinking about getting a job. You know, we had the, the kind of thoughts I had when I was a senior in high school is what kind of job could I get? How long, you know, can I live in the garage of my dad's house before my stepmom, Lynn, kicks me out? Um, What what could I do to kind of prove that I was alive? Maybe I could take a couple of classes at the junior college. Um, If I could get a job, wouldn't it be good if I could get a job like at a supermarket? I hear they have unions. You could be in the check to checker, check cashier's union or the or the bag the bag boy union or the stockers union. And I've heard about guys who got $11 an hour, but some of them who worked on Easter or Christmas got golden time. They got $22 an hour for stocking shelves on Easter. And, uh, you know, on Christmas, you get three days paid vacation. Like I had thoughts like that, like, like basic, super basic thoughts about jobs and, you know, time and a half on working Sundays. Yeah. I did, uh, I did not, uh, sorry, did, I, I didn't have thoughts about grant, I, about being an actor or being a comedian. But you did go or, to, you, you did go to community college for, yeah. for a couple of years. And was that just to mark time or when I get kicked, kicked out of yeah, the garage apartment? I, I had this, uh, I was a, a pretty good high school football player. I got recruited to play, football to a couple of colleges that weren't big big uh, football powerhouses or anything. There were 
Cal Poly, Pomona, Cal Poly, San Luis Obispo, Pacific, uh, Marshall, which is became better later on in football, and a bunch of little schools like Willamette, Lewis and Clark, weird little colleges, you know, to play football. And I didn't have grades, and I didn't take the SATs, and I, I didn't have anything. I was, I was essentially literate. So the coach from uh, L.A. Valley College, uh, Chuck something, I can't remember his last name, but he sort of recruited me. He said, you know, come to Valley College, play here for a year or two, and then transfer into, you know, Cal Poly Pomona or San Luis Obispo or um, UC Davis was one of the schools. So, like, go to one of those schools. So I said, oh, okay. And I got to junior college to, to play football, essentially, and... Chuck Ferrero, thank you, Gary. It's the guy's name. I, and 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 just quite frankly, the competition was too stiff. I I just wasn't good enough. I I, I was good enough to play a little bit and kind of, you know, be a second string guy for the first season and then start the next season. And I was just uh, I was kind of looking at the tea leaves, going, I I don't think this football mm. thing's going to work out. And I don't have any money, and I need a job, so I just kind of... Yeah, were you a lineman? What what, what, what did you play? I played uh, outside linebacker in, at, in college, at Valley College. And then um, yeah. I just dropped out, and then I was just kind of living in a garage, and the economy was junk. It was uh, 1983, and I didn't have a job, and there, there weren't any jobs. And I just found myself going from sort of construction site to construction site trying to ask ask for work. I, You know, it's like I knew a guy who knew a guy who knew a guy who built condominiums, and I'd just kind of show up going, hey, you need any labor? What, do you, what can I do? And mostly they weren't hiring. And then one day I just got a call from a guy who was working on a job, and he said they needed a guy to come out to Silver Lake and pull ivy off the side of a, a house they were building in Silver Lake, and I just came out there and pulled ivy off the side of the house all day. Yeah. My first job out of high school, the very, I, I graduated like midterm because I went to summer school the year before, and uh, my first job was uh, construction myself. I was a, a laborer. Basically, I did a little bit of everything. I had a I was an apprentice to a master carpenter named Big Rod, and uh, we're doing joist work on these apartments. And uh, I knew enough that that was one of the the big impetuses that, <laughs> that propelled me to uh, to uh, get into acting. Yeah, to tell you the truth, because I, I knew I didn't want to be out there every morning at seven o'clock. And and God bless the people who actually do that for a living. They're the real heroes of the world. It's tough work. It's tough. It's tough work. Regardless of who you are, the the laborers, you know, you start with the toughest, worst, dirtiest jobs as a laborer because you have no skill. You work your way up to finish carpenter. It's not as tough a job, but it's really tough if you're a creative type. And I didn't know I was a creative type, but it was. It's really tough to do repetitive labor all day with no stimulation at all. So I would dig ditches at the beginning and I just dug ditches. I mean, that's what you do. We do 10 hours a day and you dig ditches for 10 hours a day. That was it. If you were lucky, there was a radio on somewhere in the background playing some classic rock. But other than that, it's just you and, you know, Steely Dan and a shovel 
And that that was your life. And I was sort of going stir crazy because I was a creative, but I didn't know it. I just thought I yeah. was here to work. What was it in you that made you know that you were a creative? I found myself constantly sort of trying to make people laugh and, and saying little witticisms and repeating things and listening uh, to Sunday night radio when Dr. Demento would come on in Los Angeles and, you know, a 19-year-old weird owl would play funny songs with his accordion, you know. And I, I had this attraction to it, you know. I didn't, there was nobody fostered it around me. I didn't know what to do with it, but I, I felt like, you know, honestly, what I felt like is whenever somebody tells you there are, you know, a, a, a woman trapped inside a man's body, you know, you go, well, how did that, how did that? And they go, I don't know. Like my dad was a steel worker. My mom was a nurse and nobody in my school, but I always felt weird. I always felt like there was somebody else trapped in me. And, but I didn't know what to do. And then at some point when I was 19, I put a dress on and I felt relief, you know, and, <laughs> I, 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 felt that, I felt that way about having a sense of humor. I was like, I was working with all these blue collar dudes and kept wanting to do comedy, but nobody, everyone thought I was sort of weird. And I, eventually I just started thinking, there's something in me. I don't know what it is. It's making digging ditches all day uncomfortable. So I, I need to try to explore that in some way. Is that when you got into the groundlings? And yeah, I... Just, just I, yeah. I said, did you go? Did you try stand up first? Like go into one of those, you know, open mic nights and then get into it? Or I probably did an open mic or two. I, of course, was horrible at it, and it didn't feel that good to me. I didn't. It didn't. It didn't take. Um, I, I of course had no idea what I was doing, so it probably wouldn't feel that good. But I, I talked to a friend. I had a, I had a friend. You know, where I grew up in North Hollywood, I had sort of the Valley guys who were just straight guys, you know, football players, construction worker guys, all the guys who went from playing football to a construction site with me. Those are sort of my regular blue collar friends. But there were a handful of creative types who lived up in uh, Studio City, up in the hills. And these were... Jewish families who sometimes worked in the industry. And, and, uh -huh. and I had a friend, a girlfriend of mine, whose parents both kind of worked in the industry. Like one did music composition, the other was like a manager or something. And there was just like this nice J Jewish family up in Studio City Hills. And so I knew I shouldn't ask my buddy Ray's mom, who was a cocktail waitress, about this. <laughs> but my friend Danielle, I should ask her mom. Judy Chaikin, like she might know something about this stuff. So I, I, you know, I just said to her, Hey, uh, I, you know, I want to do like comedy, like comedy acting or I didn't probably didn't even know improvisational acting, but I was like, what would you do? Where should I go? And she said, go to the groundlings. And I had never heard of the groundlings or anything. She said, yeah, they're down on Melrose. Go down there. I think she said, go down there like on a Saturday night, watch a show. And then, and then if you like it, then you sign up for a class. I said, okay. So I went down there. I was probably 22 and drove my pickup truck down there and watched a show. And I was really impressed. 
and I had this kind of feeling of I could never do that, but but I'd like to try. And uh, I just signed up for a class the next day. Mm. Uh, it sounds like you were like casting around for encouragement about it. And you yeah. were looking for the right right person to, to like mentor you or encouragement to get there a little bit. Yeah, that was in short supply where I came from. So I had kind of, I guess there's kind of three groups when you're young. I guess there's three groups if, as I think about it. There's your immediate family, your dad and your mom and, you know, your group. You know, how yeah. do they, where are they on the encouragement scale? And my family's a zero in that department. They just, it wasn't like they liked, it wasn't like my dad said, you're going to be an orthodontist. You're not going to be a comedian. He just did, he didn't want me to be an orthodontist or a comedian. Or he didn't care. It was just a, whatever you do, just do it. He just wanted you to get a job. And just, just, get a, a, just get a job. Yeah. Just get, go leave. Leave yeah. and get a job. That was that generation. Too. That was yeah. all. We didn't ever. Yeah. We never talked about future or dreams or my muse or yeah. I've got to dance. You know, there's nothing. It was just I never talked to my dad about anything, so I didn't have any inner family thing. My friends were pretty blue collar, kind of rough and tumble, play sports, swing a hammer, drink some beers on Friday get into a car accident on Saturday while you're drunk, you know, just like <laughs> dudes. And so there wasn't, they didn't know about comedy or groundlings or any, any of that. And then I guess the third tier would be your school, your, your, um, your counselor, teachers, people around you, you know, the, the professional grade who would say, Hey, I, you know, your school counselor who'd go, hey, I've, I've heard you. You should take drama class or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have any of that either. They were just, they were just sort of, they were just sort of parole officers. You know, they just sort of watch you. I didn't really have any of that. So you signed up, you signed up for a class and you're going to, and you eventually, I guess you eventually got to where you were doing shows. No, I, I, I signed up for a class and, then I signed up for another class, and then I took a few free classes before waiting for the next class. I really yeah. just kept signing up for classes, and eventually, when it got to the very end and the time they would decide whether you could do shows or not, they said, no, hit the no. bricks. Yeah. So when you start off, and you, that must have felt like a punch in the stomach. You kind of feel like you're a failure Yeah. Uh, at that at that time it was a very low point in my life because i had at that point it probably been about four years all in for the groundlings and classes and community and it was always with the goal to make the team so to speak and again you know four years now doesn't seem like so much but from age 22 to 26 or 23 to 27 that's a good chunk of your adult life oh yeah that's when you're supposed to be kind of like getting your getting your shit together to yeah to be able to, to do what you want to do but it, i bet you one thing it did you probably wrote did a lot of comedy writing when you were at the groundlings right you're writing skits all the time coming up with ideas bouncing around which may have led you to uh radio I, it depended on what class you took. Some were just like basic, straight improv, group improv. And then later on, they had like writer's lab. 
an advanced class. And yeah, so you you would do the basics of improv, and then at some point you would get into writing. Looking back, do you do you think that being in the Groundlings actually was a help to you? What were the lessons you learned from that? Oh yeah, I mean, look, it'd be like saying you went to chef school for four years, but you never did get a job at that restaurant. Do you feel like you're a better cook? And the answer is, yeah, I learned how to cook. Yeah, I, I learned a lot. I, le- I learned a lot. And I took it with me. What propelled you to get into a, into radio, into, into keeping the sound? Was it meeting Jimmy Kimmel? Was it? No, I didn't, I didn't meet Jimmy for a number of years after that. I... I, I kind of went home with my tail between my legs from the Groundlings. The Groundlings, their take was you can sign up for another advanced class in a year because they had a waiting list. You know, take it again, try it again. No guarantees you're getting in this time. I remember at the time thinking, you know, it's going to be 18 months or two years from now, and it's going to be a coin toss to see if I get in again. I just don't think I got that kind of commitment or time or money or anything. So I just went home and I was done with the groundlings and I, I, I had no place to go to do comedy or I didn't have any group or anything. I wasn't a part of anything. And I went home and my girlfriend at the time I was living with in a little uh, single apartment in Hollywood had looked through like the drama log or one of those old papers, you know, and found in the back that there was a new improv troupe that was forming and they were looking for members. And if you wanted to try uh, this new improv troupe, you could do it. So she like gave me the address and I went down there and it ended up being the Acme Theater, which is still around today. But at the time it was called like the Two Roads Theater or something. It was like in Toluca Lake or whatever. So I just showed up with like seven or eight other people that were basically Groundlink rejects, mostly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Those people yeah. have been cut from the Groundlinks like me. And, you know, I remember- They were the cool kids. <laughs> yeah. I remember thinking, well, this isn't much, but they can't really kick me out because I'll be the founding member. I'll be grandfathered in. <laughs> it, what were you doing to support yourself through all this? You were just, you were just having a job? After job or what? You were still in carpentry? Yeah, I was always a carpenter. I, I, I realized early I needed a pickup truck. I needed tools. You know, I needed a bed box and a lumber rack. Like I, I, my relationship with work and carpentry was very pragmatic. It was, um, you don't know anybody who has a car dealership or your dad doesn't have you know, he's not an attorney and you can't go work at his law office or anything. I, I knew I had no ins and no connections and no anything. Mm-hmm. And I and also I wasn't really cut out because I wasn't educated enough to like get a job, you know, where I was someone's personal assistant or I couldn't type, you know, I couldn't spell. I knew that I needed to keep this job as a carpenter. I knew I needed to get better as a carpenter. I knew if I didn't want to do labor, I had to learn how to do finish work and and other uh, disciplines of carpentry. So I always worked full-time 
is a carpenter. Hey, Dennis Quaid here. You may know that I'm a musician and a huge music fan, and I want to tell you about a new podcast that I discovered. I've been listening to Eric Krasno Plus One, a podcast hosted by Grammy Award-winning guitarist and producer Eric Krasno. I love the interviews. They go deep with musicians, and you hear stories of life in the studio, life on the road. (laughs) Those are really good, or bad, depending on which side of the story you're on. You got stories with bandmates and all the other shenanigans that go on behind the scenes. On Plus One, Eric has candid conversations with legendary musicians, many who are also his friends. And at the end of each episode, Eric plays a favorite track from his guest. So it's great for discovering new music, too. On Plus One, Eric has candid conversations with legendary musicians, many who are also his friends. And at the end of each episode, Eric plays a favorite track from his guest. So it's great for discovering new music, too. Eric's talked to people like Dave Matthews, Marcus King, Chris Robinson, and upcoming episodes feature conversations with John Mayer, Questlove, Derek Trucks, Phil Lesh, and so many more. So take a listen to Eric Krasno Plus One. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere you get your podcast. Hi, Dennis Quaid here. Hey, we all have tough days and things that interfere with our happiness or achieving our goals. If you are looking to better yourself, then you should look into BetterHelp. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. BetterHelp evaluates what you need and connects you to your very own licensed professional therapist. You'll be connected in less than one day, and you can send messages to your counselor anytime, day or night. This is not self-help, but it is professional counseling from the comfort of your own home. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you could schedule your own weekly video or phone sessions. Confidential, convenient, professional, and affordable. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting BetterHelp.com Quaid. Join over 800,000 people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com, slash Quaid. Well, yeah, so you had a skill to fall back on. Well, I wasn't falling back it was, on it. I was, I was smack dab in the middle of it. Well, you were, you were falling back. I was just falling back in general, but... Yeah, that, that I never. It's funny. Once I stopped doing carpentry, I never fell back on it. But uh, but I had a skill, and I I needed yeah. I needed I, my other options were you know work at Wendy's or McDonald's for six bucks an hour, and I was making thirteen bucks an hour as a carpenter. So I, my plan was to keep going with that. Well, Harrison Ford had the same thing, didn't he? He was like. Uh doing a lot of carpentry work. In fact, I think that's uh, when they were casting Star Wars. Uh, He was doing some carpentry work there in the offices, and they just asked him to come over and read. Yeah. I'd always heard that story. I've never met him. I always felt like, you know, because of what I know, I can tell if a guy's a real carpenter or not. And I always had this fantasy about hanging out, meeting Harrison Ford, and... Asking him, you know, what 
what number insulation goes in two by fours versus a two by six wall? R13, R16, what's the layout uh, when you're framing? Tell me about, tell me what the difference between a trimmer and a king stud is. What's the difference between eight penny, 16 penny ring shanks and duplex nails? Get the lingo going on. Get the lingo going. (laughs) So yeah, I was, uh, I I always work full time. I've worked full time as a carpenter. Which was kind of tough because the the comedy world that I was fantasizing about was sort of late night coffee shops, cigarettes, and writing jokes. And the carpentry world was up at six, you know, drive to Canoga Park, rolled out and working by seven and just kind of de- yes. dealing with the dust and the heat, you know. Yeah, which one sounds better? Right. Well, what was what was the magic moment though for you? Did you have a magic moment, or did uh, at the time and realize it, or did you look back and go, "Hey, that was a magic moment"? I I had been trucking around doing my carpentry, taking my classes, doing open mic stand up, doing anything I could do, taking anything anyone would give me, uh, you know, play some. Uh, New Year's Eve party for 50 bucks and do 10 minutes of stand-up or something. Like, I, I would just take anything, do anything. Uh, it wasn't going anywhere. I just, it just wasn't going anywhere. I wasn't making any money. I taught comedy traffic school. I thought, well, I could get paid to tell some jokes if I do comedy traffic school. And I was, and you had a captive audience, captive, angry audience. (laughs) Yeah. And I would, you know, you'd make 85 or 90 bucks for a Saturday, you know, eight hours. And in my world, it was kind of like I was getting paid to do stand up. you know, in a a weird way. It was like my first professional gig. Um, I said to myself, you know, by the time you're 30, if this thing is not working out, you're going to have to figure something else out. Like, uh, because carpentry was hard work. You didn't get paid for days you weren't there. If it rained and the job site was muddy and you didn't work, you didn't get paid. No, I I never had health benefits. I never had medical, dental, insurance. I didn't have anything. And I was like, I'll give it, I'll give you till 30 to get a job doing something creative. It doesn't need to be on TV or behind a microphone. It could be just be contributing to someone who's on TV or behind a microphone or producer. Yeah. Writing a funny uh, greeting cards. That I would accept that. Anything, anything but swinging a hammer. And uh, 30 was coming up, and I didn't appear to be really any closer to, to my goal. I was just going to turn 30. I'd taken a bunch of classes. I'd done Acme Theater. I'd done a bunch of open mics. I had nothing to show for it. I wasn't getting paid. I I didn't have any connections. And it didn't seem like it was working out. But one day when I was driving my truck over the hill to uh, deliver an entertainment unit I built for a customer, at that point I had clients and I would build them. And I was doing a lot of finish work. And so I'd build them an entertainment unit or a chest of drawers. I'd build people beds, you know, I'd be like custom. I had a handful of clients that had a little money and I'd, I sort of built them custom, custom stuff. And, uh, and I heard about a box. I was listening to uh, K-Rock out in Los Angeles and I heard the Kevin and Bean show and I heard uh, Jimmy the sports guy, who's Jimmy Kimmel. And I heard him talking about a boxing match 
And I was also teaching boxing as well. I built a gym um, called Bodies in Motion, and I, I taught classes there. And they needed a boxing coaches and equipment, and they needed everything because this fight was on. And I, uh, a, a light went off in my head. I was like, I got to get in on this, I, I thought. I want to see the inside of a radio station. I didn't know who Jimmy was. I didn't know the guy he was mm. fighting. I, I didn't know anything. I just kept calling, and nobody would answer the phone. I'd leave a message. Nobody would call back. I, I didn't have a cell phone. You know, I had to get to the client's house and run in and ask if I could use the phone, you know, bolted to the wall in the kitchen. And... Uh, <laughs> It's what, like to be the tenth caller or something. Right. <laughs> yeah, well, they just needed. They kept saying, "We need trainers. We need trainers. Right. You know, we need trainers." I was like, "I'm a trainer. I'm a trainer. I'm a trainer." And, uh, and no one ever called back. Eventually, I literally just went to the radio station one morning, and I went there early because I used to teach a seven a.m. class in Pasadena, and I couldn't get in because the building was locked. And then I found out they opened the building at seven. It was like a commercial building. And I, I said, okay, I'll come back the next day at seven because I had to go teach my class, you know. So I went and yeah. taught my class. And then the next day, I got a guy to cover for me for like the first half of my class. I went back to the building at seven and I got in the building and I went up the elevator to where K Rock was on the ninth floor in Burbank. But K-Rock was locked. Their business hours start at 9 a.m. So uh, I found myself just standing in the, the lobby, uh, standing by the elevators on the ninth floor. I didn't know what to do. K-Rock was locked. Yeah, because if you go downstairs, you may not get back up. If I get back, but there was nothing back, there was nothing where I was either. There was, there yeah. was no, I couldn't get into K-Rock. I knew they were doing the morning show in the building, but the but the the suite was locked. Their floor was locked up. So, um some, some. I was just standing there by the elevators, kind of trying to figure out what to do, how I could knock on the door, how it would work. And uh, some guy was walked in, you know, with like a key card. He was going in the back door. He was dropping off stuff. He worked there or something. Just going yeah. in. I, I just said, "Hey, uh, I'm a boxing coach. I, 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 I'm here to teach some, you know, uh, Jimmy or, or Michael, the maintenance man. That's the guy who was fighting." I said, I'm here. I'm, I'm a boxing coach. I'm waiting by the elevators. When you go in, could you tell those guys you're just a boxing coach standing by the elevators? And I'll be waiting here. <laughs> and I stood there for I was like 20 minutes or something. At some point, uh, uh, Jimmy came out, just came down the hall. He just walked down the hall, just looking at me. And he said, are you the boxing coach? I said, yeah, I'm the boxing coach. He said, okay. I said, do you, wanna, you want me to train you to box? He said, yeah, okay. I said, okay, when do you want to start? And he said, I don't know, today? And I said, okay, we'll start today. And uh, I said, what, what time? He said, uh, noon. Where are, you, where are you at? I said, we're in Pasadena. That's where my gym is. He said, okay, I'll see you there at noon. I said, okay, I'll, I'll just be standing in the parking structure, just kind of waiting for you to pull in. You know, I said, okay. And that was it. <laughs> so... <laughs> You trained Jimmy for what a couple of weeks, and yeah, and, it was probably. Yeah, did, we, did you get on air with him to, when the when the when the bout came up? Yeah, it was probably. I had, as I recall, it was probably like two and a half weeks. It was like a little more than two weeks, maybe seventeen days or something like that. Mm. And 
yeah, once or twice maybe they said, let's check in with the trainers and see how the progress is going, you know, in kind of morning zoo fashion. Right. And um, and so I was trying to be funny, you know. Right. And I, I was being funny. But it was also kind of weird because I, I didn't want to present myself like a comedian. I want to present myself like a boxing coach because I wasn't, I didn't want to make people think I was just trying to get in my foot in the door so I could do comedy. But that was your break, basically. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you actually got on the air and that, and that's, that was, that was the start of, of something right there. After that, did you uh, become like you go you go from this boxing match so so how how'd you get back on the air after that you know by the time i had worked with jimmy for 2 weeks plus we found ourselves as talking comedy so so mm. much you know we'd do a little bit of boxing and then we'd sit around and talk comedy for 2 hours and drink a snapple you know they had a little uh, cafe upstairs above the gym and the gym was kind of down in the basement in uh, old town Pasadena. And, you know, we train for like eh, half an hour or something. And then I'd say, yeah, let's go upstairs and get a Snapple. And, you know, he wanted to stop training too. So we'd go upstairs and get a Snapple. And then we just sit there talking for like two hours about comedy and what we wanted to do and blah, blah, blah. And I had this old, VHS tape that I made on some like Eagle Rock community TV station or something about answering home improvement questions or something. One, it's just a nothing burger, but I, I gave it to him and he saw it and he was convinced that I was funny and talented. He, he, even though I was his boxing coach. So when we we're done with the boxing match, you know, now he didn't have a lot of sway over at the station. He was pretty new and no one was listening to him, and he kind of knew it. But I said, uh, well, what do we do? Because we're kind of at the end of our, our trail here. Uh, now we either part ways and I never get on the radio or we somehow get me on the radio, but <laughs> but I'm your boxing coach and the, the bout's over. So how do we do this, you know? And he said to me, what do you do? What is it? that you do? What is your strength? What do you want to do? What are you good at? And I said, what I do is I sit and I crack wise. I improvise. I work off the cuff. I sit, I sit in, you know, between Kevin and Bean and I make them funnier. And he said, uh, well, we don't need that. No one's going to, you're not coming into the studio and cracking wise. You're, you're the boxing coach. You know, you're not, you're not just going to be on the air, you know, as the third guy. Kevin and Bean, that's their job. You don't do that. I said, well, that's what I do. He said, well, if you want to get on the radio, you have to come up with a character. And I said, I don't really do characters. I, I do what I said I did. And he said, well, you want to get on, then you come up with a character because that's the way you're going to get on. And I said, okay. And he said, uh, you know, here's the number to call in on Monday, this is probably like on a Friday, here's the number to call in on a, on a Monday. And uh, I'm not going to tell them who you are. I'm not going to tell them that you're the boxing coach because that, they're not going to, that, that, that'll taint you. 
they yeah. they'll they'll think of you as a boxing coach. I'm just gonna tell them I got a guy. He's funny. He's gonna call in on uh, Monday, and he said, "Look, they're gonna hear it. They're probably not gonna like it, and that'll probably be the last time you could call in. But if they like it, you can then call in the next week." You know, and I said, okay, thanks. And then I just spent the whole weekend trying to come up with a character, at, which I wasn't good at, but I had enough groundling training and enough improv training to know how to develop a character. Yeah, so they came up with a shop teacher, right? Yeah. Yeah. Was that a real person that was, you know, like, from, from your past? You know, yeah, like in high school, the you know the shop coach. I mean, the shop teacher. It was kind of a composite. the The guy, my shop teachers in junior high were all sort of gnarled, gnarled kind of rough asses. You know, Vietnam. Yeah, guy. they were usually the guys that you know had the board that you you get pops with if you were out of line or something. They would always it was yeah the gym coaches or or the shop teacher who would you know deal out the the, the corporal punishment. They. They seem to hate kids, which I always yeah. felt yeah. funny. And yeah. that kind of a through line, which is they didn't and like- Very short views. Short views, <laughs> didn't like their kids, and kind of looked at it as the shop was their shop, and they were being inconvenienced by kids showing up at their shop. They never really thought that that's the school shop, and they're there to teach kids. But- yeah. They were all angry, scary, you know, big forearms, salt and pepper in the hair kind of guys. And I remember to this day, like Mr. Gage, the metal shop teacher, he was an asshole, Mr. Saponzi, you know, Mr. Martin. Like, I, I hated all these guys, and so did everyone. They were angry guys. And uh, so I thought, those guys, that guy would be a good character. And I know that world. I know carpentry. I know woodworking really well. And there's a guy I played Pop Warner football with in uh, Sun Valley Falcons named Eric Burcham. And I liked his name because it had the word birch in it, like wood, you know. So I came up with Mr. Burcham. And Mr. Burcham taught remedial wood at Louis Pasteur Middle School in Monrovia, which, of course, remedial wood. Remedial. <laughs> <laughs> And of course, none of none of it existed. But I just showed up as that guy, and that's who I was. You developed that character, and I think kind of out of that character came Adam Carolla a bit. It seems to me that all the driving around in between jobs, in between looking for jobs as a carpenter in your truck, you were like the regular guy trying to make a living out there in the real world, having real thoughts. Uh, about all these big ideas that, they, you know, the politicians and the government all come up with. You're a regular guy. My memory of you is when I first heard you on the radio. You, you developed yourself. During a time at, here in California, you seemed to be kind of a conservative voice that had its roots in the working man which is yeah. usually sort of a union democratic base. And, uh, but it was just kind of a no-nonsense thing. It really reminded me of my dad and his, his politics because it wasn't about big ideas. It was about just a day-to-day -day experience in life. Yeah, you know, I was never in a union 
I always wanted to be in one because I saw how sort of synthetic it was. I mean, not, you know, here's what I kind of learned. I learned that if you just worked like I did, you just work, you got 15 bucks an hour. Uh, but if you could get into a union, you could get 25 bucks an hour plus golden time, plus overtime, plus, you know, benefits, plus, mm. you know, holidays, plus everything. And of course I wanted that. I'd, I'd get paid holidays and medical and dental and stuff. I could never find my way to that. At some point I got a job doing earthquake rehab work for the city. And I went from making 13 bucks an hour to making like 19 bucks an hour just because I was working for the city. But I also kind of realized that they got stuff wrong. Like each job could have like one laborer and five carpenters on it when we were doing earthquake rehab work. And for some reason, the carpenters got 18 bucks an hour and the laborers got 1950 an hour. So in some weird world, the laborers got paid more. And so mm. they made me the laborer because I was the best carpenter. So we're living in kind of backwards world. It's like as right. the best. So at the time, a carpenter, at the time I was getting 13, 14 bucks an hour as a carpenter and a laborer would get seven, eight bucks an hour. I mean, they, they get paid about half of what the carpenters got paid. In the right. city world, they got paid more. And I, and I started to kind of look at that and it had a lot of bureaucracy around it. Like you needed to have mm. a, a black person. You need to have a woman. You need to have like, it was a lot of rules, you know, and a lot of the, you know, people, some of the people they hired didn't, weren't carpenters, but they still needed a person to check the box. So they needed a right. black person, even if he wasn't a carpenter, but they needed to fill it. The EEOC needed blah, blah, blah. And I started to kind of realize these rules are costing the taxpayers money and they're not getting this job finished any faster. And I don't even think they're really helping the woman who's on the job site who doesn't, who's not a carpenter. She's getting paid temporarily, but I don't know what the big picture is for her. And frankly, it's a little dangerous for her because she doesn't really know how to handle herself. So I started like seeing the lay of the land at that point. And it was kind of at that point where I, I just got this sort of brass tacks kind of basic position, which serves me practically, but it's, politically, it's the way I think too. It's okay. Mm. There's not a lot of people. Like, I, I don't feel like there's a lot of people, uh, especially uh, here in LA, on the radio from your background with your experience, and you you seem to be the voice for all those people who are the, the working people who are driving around in, uh, in between jobs and listening to talk radio in town. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't go to college. So I didn't have, I don't have ideologies, you know, it's kind mm -hmm. of, a, it's kind of an interesting time we're in, which is people think I have an ideology. I'm not, no, I'm, I'm not religious and I didn't yeah. go to college. My ideology yeah. I say to people all the time, here's my ideology. If I'm a personal trainer and my ideology is diet and exercise, that's it. Yeah. Just, yeah. just work. Raise your kids. Right. Pay your bills. Yeah. Feed your kids. I don't know. Yeah. I don't think that's an ideology. That's just life. 
Well, having a, having a job, feeding your kids, everything is not an ideology, or, nor uh, nor necessarily uh, being part of uh, any political party either. Well, it's, just, it's all just becoming, it's becoming politicized, which is no, interesting no. to me. It has over the past uh, 20, 30 years. It's 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 come to that, and uh, it's reflected in every part of life these days. Yeah, it's so it's a. But you've always been the kind of guy that, you know, you, you've said yes to everything. As, as far as getting a job, you believe in working. And you've worked yourself up. You, from there, you go to television. You do, you do the man show. You got Dr. Drew. What was that that you've, you felt about dispensing advice? Did you feel like you were at all qualified for that? Um. I always had a lot of ideas and notions and thoughts and I, I kind of a thought of myself as pretty pragmatic. I always had an interest in psychology, even though my life wouldn't have suggested it at the time. I did like the way that the human mind worked and I was always attracted to that and, and what motivated people and how to motivate people and I was always something that was very interesting to me. And I've, I've never really made a, a separation between a love of psychology and a love of comedy. It's comedy is really just mastering psychology and putting right. a little twist at the end. But it's really, there's a lot of psychology in, in comedy. And so for me, I love the idea of somebody giving me a microphone for two hours a night and bouncing those ideas off off America, I was in love with that job. Well, you 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 always seem to be willing to try anything from that, and you know you you go on into television and you get. And by the way, I just I, I just saw winning the other night, uh, uh, Paul Newman about Paul Newman and racing. And gosh, I can't believe what a well done movie that was. Oh, it, it, re really incredible, you know and. I think because you, you you've been unafraid to try to try anything uh, that uh, uh, you know has made you what you are really. You're an author, and what's the book that you got coming up? It's uh, I have. Uh, I'm, I'm uh, your new. Uh, I'm your emotional support animal, navigating <laughs> our all woke, no joke universe or society or something. Uh, navigating our all woke. No joke, Gary's putting in culture. Um, yeah, that's out uh, June 16th, but it always helps to uh, pre-order the books because it gets you into more outlets. So pre-order it. You just go to Amazon, get the audio book or get the hardback. It'll be my uh, fifth book. And uh, it's, I think, amongst my most poignant and funniest. It's just no holds barred. I mean, it, it, I'm just, every opinion that's in my head is on that book, on the page. Uh, I, I think you ought to write a book about the lockdown that, that's uh, believe going it or on not, now. I feel that percolating with you. <laughs> believe it or not, there is some of that in there because we're finishing the book as this thing was going down. So there is yeah. a, the last chapter is on the the virus. And uh, yeah, I'm glad you saw winning. I, li I like making docs a lot. We have There's also a bunch of docs on Netflix that we've done if you want to see those as well, racing docs. Yeah. Adam, I, I feel like uh, your you, your life, and just who you are deserves 
several more shows, actually, as the Renaissance goes on here. And I, I can't tell you what an inspiration you are to me, actually, because I'm new to this podcast thing myself. And I, I've always lived with the philosophy that I'll try anything twice. And well, this is, is a, this is taking a long time to come around, but when uh, I've always told you on my podcast, but I'll say it on your podcast now, of course, when the movie Breaking Away was in the theaters in 1979, 1980, I saw that and I was so inspired. And I didn't have one foot in acting or show business or anything. I was playing football in high school. You know, I was just a jock, but I, I was so inspired by breaking away. And I, I just thought it was so, it just, it, it, it just struck a chord in me. And I'm not sure well, what. Well, it, it was about kids like you, actually. Right, it really you was. Know, who had grown up like townies, who, you know, were just expected not to really get any place. And they were living in a college town and all they really, uh, the, their future was maybe getting a job as a stone cutter. I, I was basically two and a half years away from being a cutter except for there was no quarry or mill in my town. I was just going to be out. And, and it just struck a chord. And I always just thought, uh, you know, if I, one day I thought if I ever made a movie, that would be my template for a movie. And about 10 years ago, I made a movie called The Hammer, which is a boxing movie. And it's really just breaking away for boxing, if you look at that movie. That, that's the next one I got to see. Oh, you just have so much stuff. It's hard to go through your body of work, man. Well, you like a sports. If you like a sports movie, you should definitely watch The Hammer because that is. And you, of all people, should watch it because it's really. I had breaking away in my head when I was writing and making that film, oh. like all all through through the whole film. Well, maybe you and I should do a boxing match because you know I boxed for twenty years myself. Oh, no, I'm, I'm too scared. <laughs> so am I. <laughs> well, I think I friend. checked. I, I, I honestly, I think I remember going to, I went to like Rotten Tomatoes. Gary, you can do this. I, I went to Rotten Tomatoes yeah. and I thought, I wonder. It's 80%. It's great. I said, I said, what's the score and what's the people score? And then I went, What's the breaking away score and the breaking away people score? And I think they had the same score, which means Rotten Tomatoes has oh. no idea what they're doing. But well, but I well, had they didn't have Rotten Tomatoes when it came out, but I guess they score it anyway. Breaking away is ninety four with the critics, which is unbelievable, and eighty eight with the people, and the hammer is eighty with the critics and ninety with the people. So the uh, edge. The edge goes to breaking away, but still, well, pretty close. I don't know. Sounds like a rematch to me. <laughs> well, watch it and tell me what you think. <laughs> All right, pal. Hey, man, it's been great talking to you. Keep going. And uh, let's get back together here on your show or on the Denisance anytime. My, uh, my door's always open, Dennis. Same here, man. Thank you. You have a great one. You too. See you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Denissance. Please make sure to rate, review, and of course subscribe so you can get new episodes delivered straight to your podcast player. Hey, and make sure to tune back in next week.
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.